Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come before you again. Lord, I pray that this wouldn't just be coming before you again, because this is what we do every week, and this is just part of what we religiously follow through on, because this is what's expected of us. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would fill us up, that we would remember afresh that you are God, that we have been repurposed. Help us, Lord, to hear from your word and apply it to our lives and carry it with us through this week, we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 26. Starting at verse 24, Acts chapter 26, I'm going to start reading at verse 24 and read through verse 32. Isn't that a beautiful sound? Do you hear what I hear? All, all these pages flipping, it's like, that's a great sound. It means you're actually getting in the word and you're not just going to take my word for granted. God's word is far more important than mine. Acts 26, starting at verse 24. Let's stand up for the reading of God's word. Paul, still on trial. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. The reading of God's word. Go ahead and be seated. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, the world thinks you're nuts. The world thinks we're crazy. You believe in a God you cannot see. You speak a language that only you can understand. Blood and flesh at the Lord's table. Sacrifice and death on a cross. Lamb of God and Lion of Judah. God is triune, three persons, one God. Sin, narthex, transepts, and fellowship. Who in the world talks like this? I'm going to have fellowship with my family in Christ as we observe the football teams on the television, right? And your salvation, it's so exclusive. Only one way? Why can't you just jump on board with the whole coexist philosophy? 
One person expressed it like this online. He said, or she said, I don't know. The author is unknown, but they said, in the end, the believer is like a selfish cancer. It is first, it is first and foremost interested in preserving and furthering itself and in fully realizing its reborn self. It acts exactly as a cancer does, killing its host, taking over as many cells as it can and welcoming the end of the world as some sort of fulfillment of its self-destructive anti-world destiny. It is a crazy system and people who belong to it are madmen. If they don't recognize this, it's time everyone else does. God's word says there is nothing new under the sun. So we see Festus. Long before this person ever got a chance to put anything online, Festus, not understanding what is being said before him, he declared with a loud voice, verse 24, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Festus said with a megaphone. It's like he pulled out the megaphone and, and right, turned it on and started telling everybody as loud as he could. In the, in the Greek, it's literally megaphone, megaphone, a great voice. He shouts before everyone, quite literally, you are mad, Paul. Your many books are turning you mad. Are they right? Are we mad? Has reading scripture driven us out of our minds? Have we lost all logic and reality? Or is there a good reason? Is there good reason for us to have the same boldness and forthrightness that Paul does here before Festus and Agrippa, and all the rest of them great and small. Paul had a certain boldness, didn't he? He had a, a confident assurance in what he believed, and a willingness to share that faith because he knew that it was true and transparent. He knew that his faith and God's word were true and transparent. Verse 25. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words. God's word is true and rational. It is honest and somber. It does not divert from the reality or deny the reality that we see around us, but it addresses and explains life in the world as we see it, as we experience it. Psalm 119, 160 tells us that the sum of God's word, the sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. But we don't want to use a circular argument for the truth of God's word. Of course, God's word says it's true, right? We don't just take this truth for granted. We don't have to because of God's grace to us. We can see the truth of God's word through its nature, through history, through science, and through the very preservation of God's word. Nature, history, science, and preservation. All four of those point us to the truth of God's word. The nature of God's word is unlike any other book in history. 
We have 66 different books written over a period of about 1,600 years with 40 different authors from kings to tax collectors to fishermen to Pharisees, both the educated and the uneducated, written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. All of this mix coming together with a single unified message of the nature, character, and plans of God in creation and for our salvation from our own sinful choices. As God worked through Israel to bring salvation to the world. All of it written as if it had one single author. All scripture is breathed out by God. And its message is utterly unique. It's, it's not a book that claims the greatness of any man. Any human book written, it always has a hero, right? And that hero is, is lauded, a, a, a man even over the, the men defeat the, the Greek gods, right? In, in Greek mythology, they, they overcome or, or they do something wonderful and they are lauded for what they do. But, but in, in scripture, we see that it, it's not a book that claims the greatness of any man, but it claims solely the greatness of God alone. Even the greatest human subjects in scripture are shown to have their own sins. Moses had his as he led Israel, not giving God the glory, not doing things the way God said as he hit the rock and said, do I have to give you water? As Israel complained about not having water and God said, you're going to go and tell them such and such and, and do it this way. And, and Moses didn't do it the way God said. And so he wasn't allowed into the promised land. He had sin. King David, a man after God's own heart, not only had an affair with a married woman, but sent her husband to the front line to have him murdered. All the greatest men of God in, in God's word are shown to have sin. And salvation, unlike any other world religion, is dependent upon God and God alone and not on any works of man. All those Old Testament laws, all those Old Testament works that they had to follow through on were just there to show us that we can't. They never could. They didn't. They always forgot. They always ignored. They always set it aside. They could never win their own salvation before God. As all those Old Testament laws and, and works, they point us to the fact that reconciliation to God is in Christ alone. Through historical events, we see that the promises and prophecies of God are fulfilled. There were eyewitnesses to the healings that Jesus performed on the deaf and the blind and the paralytic. All of these confirming what Isaiah had said some seven to eight hundred years before it actually happened. Isaiah 35, 2 through 5, it says, They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come 
and save you. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. All of these things done by Christ. And in Paul's day, there were, there were many alive who had seen Jesus risen from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 6. Then he, Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of all, who are still alive. Paul here is, is practically giving, he's calling out an invitation. They're still alive. Go talk to them yourself. They saw him. 500 at once. As the Apostle John said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, was made tangible here and present, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ the events of history, the eyewitnesses pointing to the truth of what God has said, the prophecies fulfilled. Science, subject that the world likes to use and so many attempt to use against God as time and time again had to submit itself to Scripture. There was a time when people said the world is flat, Right? And when all the world said the world is flat, what did God's word say? Isaiah 40, 22, God sits above the circle of the earth. God knew what he was doing. He could see it. Mankind had to circumnavigate the globe and go to the moon to see that God was right and what he said is true. While people want to believe that there are more than one gender today, empirical, biological science adheres to the fact that there are only two genders, no matter what any man says. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Eventually, the world will have to submit itself to the truth of God's word. Science already has. Archaeological science proves biblical claims over and again. As time goes by and new discoveries are made, there was a time that people doubted the truth of Scripture because the Old Testament speaks of a people called the Hittites. And they said, there is no proof that this nation ever existed. Scripture, the Old Testament, has got to be false. They said, the Bible is wrong. It can't be trusted. The Hittites don't exist. There's no proof. They said it until an archaeological dig in 1812 discovered some ruins which were researched and shown to be the biblical Hittite people in a book published by Dr. William Wright in 1884. Oops. Even this very book of Acts, people like to, to pick through it and say, oh, that can't be true. 
There, there's a word that they use when Paul goes into Thessalonica and, and it's, it's the, the city authorities and, and politarchus. And people never used that word in that area at that time. It, it can't be true. The book of Acts has got to be false. Until archaeologists dug up a, a plaque that talked about the politarchus, the city authorities in Thessalonica. Oops again. And still, people question, can God's word be trusted? If we were to take into account the New Testament writings, we would see that they have been preserved to a greater extent and accuracy than any other writing in history. The earliest extent copy is less than 100 years removed from the original writing, which means the copyist could have had the original in his hands as he copied it. When brought together and and cross-checked, the 5,686 Greek manuscripts and and papyrus copies of of whole and fragments of Scripture that that we have available to us, they attest to a 99.5% accuracy rate. We're talking about a book that has been copied ad infinitum over and over again, copyist after copyist going throughout the whole Middle East being copied and then throughout Europe being copied. And yet the variants, or scribal errors as they call them, are rare. One half of one percent. And of all those variants, none of them affect context. None of them affect an orthodox doctrine. Compare scripture to Homer's Iliad. Anybody doubt that Homer wrote the Iliad? No? No? And yet that one only has 643 copies. The earliest one is 500 years separated from the original, and there is only a 95% accuracy rate. And yet everybody tries to say, Homer wrote the Iliad, and it's a good thing, and, but Scripture, no. It's totally wrong. The words we speak from Scripture are true and rational. And the evidence, we could talk far, far longer about all the evidence that abounds, that points to the truth of what God has told us in his word. What we speak from Scripture is true, and our faith is transparent. See, God has nothing to hide. Verse 26, Paul says, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. There are no secret passwords or secret knowledge to faith in Christ. This is not a Gnostic cult. There aren't special handshakes and stuff you have to know to get into the good graces of God. Faith in Christ is available to anyone who will receive him as their Lord and Savior. God's word is available to anyone who will read it, and the events of Scripture were all done out in the open. For anyone to see and anyone to know, King Agrippa, 
should have known and would have seen. As I mentioned earlier, there were so many eyewitnesses, over 500 at once, who saw Jesus alive. The disciples at the beginning of Acts, as we studied, how many days did they see Jesus and he taught them about the kingdom of God? Forty days, right? Hard to blame that on a bad ham sandwich. From his public ministry to the crucifixion and resurrection, nothing about Jesus is hidden. Josephus, a a secular Jewish-Roman historian at that time from the New Testament period, in his writings, he makes references to John the Baptist and to Jesus himself. This was all very public. Anybody who was alive would have known the stuff that was going on. And yes, there will be mysteries and unknowns about an eternal and infinite God who is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. There are things that finite man will not know. But he has revealed to all mankind in creation, in his word, and in Jesus Christ everything we need to know to be forgiven of our sin and restored to our creator. Everything we need for salvation and a rational understanding of God, man, and the world. Be careful not to discount what you do know about God. In Christ Jesus, just because there may be some things you don't know or don't understand about God. Why wouldn't there be? He's a whole lot bigger than we are. Paul had a boldness in his faith because he knew God to be trustworthy and transparent. And it gave him a a boldness in sharing that faith. And in in sharing that faith, have you noticed that that Paul was always looking for connecting points, some way to to bring God's word together with people's lives. We, We saw him do it back in Athens in chapter 17. He knew his audience and he spoke to them where they were. Somebody could say, well, what do you mean he knew his audience? This poor Roman official, Festus, could never be expected to understand matters of Jewish religion or to make judgments on on visions and resurrection claims. It's no wonder Festus was confused. But Paul wasn't talking to Festus, was he? Starting in verse 26. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Though he he wanted Festus and everyone there to hear the conversation, Paul was speaking to Agrippa, wasn't he? What seemed like madness to Festus made perfect sense to Agrippa. And so Paul had a boldness in sharing the gospel. Have you ever found that it's difficult to to bring up a subject out of nowhere? Especially a heavy subject? I gotta fire this guy. I don't know how to do that. We're talking about coffee and how am I gonna... And then they open it. It's always nice when, when somebody opens the door, isn't it? 
when they open the door to a conversation and, and you get to say, speaking of which, da 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 right? Paul kept an eye out for open doors that would connect God's word with people's lives. And when that natural connection happened, he jumped in with both feet. Agrippa knew scripture and the events around the person and works of Jesus Christ. Agrippa asked Paul to speak for himself. Paul was there in chains at the right time in the right place. Here goes. Right? You opened it up. Here's the gospel. It's almost as good as somebody walking through our own doors. Out of a curiosity as to how and why we worship Jesus. Connecting points. The ability to, to see a place and time where we can connect God's word to where a person is. The, these moments give us a, an assurance, a, a, a boldness, a, a confidence in sharing the gospel, don't they? When it's, when it's just natural. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. So you may have thought as I spoke about people coming through our doors and how natural that makes it. They're coming and looking, right? You may have sat there and said, but I can't. I'm an introvert. People don't like me. People don't like me either. <laughs> but my confidence isn't in me. It's not about me. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Since we have such a hope, since we have eternal life in Christ Jesus and hope in his resurrection, we are very bold. Are we looking for opportunities to be bold? Do we have our eyes out for open doors so that we can step through them and, and watching for those connecting points, for opportunities to share Christ with somebody else? Are we looking for, are, are we even looking forward to? You see, there's, there's a difference. There's a difference between obligation and love. There's a difference between religion and faith. One is a, a mental acknowledgement of, of what we should be doing, and the other comes with a heartfelt desire to do so. A softening of our heart. We can all nod our heads as we recite Acts 1-8 together. But are we looking for a chance to share the gospel, to, to share gospel-centered conversation over a meal or over a cup of coffee with somebody that we don't know that well? Or to engage somebody in our soil, in our sphere of influence lives, in some fashion or other for, for the sake of Christ. 
Here at Alden Union Church, we are going to a single unified service in order to add another program to our agenda. We are calling it the connection time so that we have an opportunity to connect our face with a donut and a cup of coffee. You can shake your head no at this point. No. This change and this connection time will be a, a complete waste of time. It will be just another program unless we are ready to open our eyes and hearts to the, to the connecting points with people that, that God will provide us through it. We have got to bring with us hearts prepared to engage others in this. Let's do this together as a family in Christ because God desires that all people would come to know Jesus as their Savior. Verse 29. And Paul said, after Agrippa says, in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. We need to have hearts for others like Paul did. He, he looked at these people who were putting him up for a show with all their pomp and circumstance. He looked at these people who were trying to find him, trying to get him to say something against himself, trying to find something wrong with him. Uh, the, he was looking at the one who cuts him off on the road, who thinks they're better than you who we think don't understand or care about the things of God. And he chose to give them the good news. He chose to give them the gospel that maybe one day he could call them brother or sister, just as Ananias did for him back in chapter 9 when he did not deserve that at all. He was a murderous persecutor of the church, breaking up families, sending people to their death. And Ananias, under the direction of God, said, Brother Paul, what powerful words. Paul wasn't doing anything wrong here, was he? But out of his heart for the gospel and his love for others, he would rather be in chains, sharing the gospel, than free and having to hide in order to, to be safe from those who were trying to kill him from Jerusalem. Verses 30 to 32, the king arose and the governor and Benice were, and those sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. Is this our heart for others? Would we rather be in chains so that they could have eternal life and be with us forever before our God? Or would we rather be hiding our faith on vacation or, or too busy in, with life, too busy with work, too busy with the kids, too busy with this, too busy with that? Are we praying? Are we praying for those who, might be, who, who we might be able to reach with the gospel, those in our sphere of influence lies, our soil. First Timothy 2, 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, 
intercessions and thanksgivings be made for for all people right for kings and for all who are in high places that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of god our savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth and we are his tools perhaps we we need to be praying that god would even bring somebody new into our soil somebody who needs salvation to come to Christ and, and, and receive the salvation that comes in Christ alone, right? The salvation and the eternal life that you already have. Let's seek to reflect the, the church of Acts who prayed for boldness as they said, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They were being threatened by the ruling authorities of Israel. Men who could have had them killed. And yet they prayed for boldness. We aren't being threatened, are we? Not really. Not, not in the least. I think we are soft. We are really soft. I'm afraid we just don't want boldness. It's rather inconvenient. And, and honestly... I'll put myself in the same picture as anybody else. Honestly, I'd rather not have my comfort zone threatened. But God, we need to choose to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, everywhere we go, everywhere we are. What is Acts chapter 1, verse 8? Amen. Be his witnesses, right? That's our memory verse. Next weekend's our last weekend for it, so we're going to stand up and say it loud and proud, okay? We need to, to, to Acts 1-8, remembering that our boldness does not come from us, our, our own great wisdom or our own great strength, but God. God chooses to work through that which is weak in this world in order to accomplish that which is eternal in Christ Jesus. And to that end, he has given us his spirit. You shall receive power when the spirit comes upon you. 2 Timothy 1.7 God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. He's given us his word, which is true, and a faith that is transparent that we would connect the gospel with the lives of those around us to the end of the earth, no matter how crazy they might think we are. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your spirit. Help us, Lord, to not be those who grieve your spirit, but who trust in you and, and are ready to pray for boldness, who are excited and, and ready to love as you've called us to. 
Lord, give us strength that is not our own and wisdom that is not our own and words that are not our own as we go forth from this place, as we have fellowship with one another and with those in our families, those that we know. Father God, would you grace us to be tools in your hands, to be strengthened in our understanding and our confidence in your word, knowing that your word is true and our faith is is transparent. You've done nothing in the dark, but you've done it all that all would be able to know that you are God. All would be able to know of salvation in Christ and in Christ alone. We praise you, Lord, this morning. Thank you for calling us to yourself. And we praise you in in Jesus' precious name. Amen.